Welcome back to the podcast Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 165, Love Your Enemies. And on the podcast this week, we are going to wrap up Matthew chapter 5 by looking at verses 43 through 48, which is all about loving one's enemies. And what Jesus does in this particular passage is actually brilliant. And I always receive this as a rebuke every time I read it. And I do think that Jesus is intending to bring us and walk us into the path of life, which he has said on numerous occasions. And yet this one, if last week's passage wasn't the most ignored in the New Testament, this one probably is, or it's at least a close second. And so we overlapped a bit about what I said last week with respect to this week. So this episode might be a bit shorter, but I do think it's important for us to follow Jesus's logic all the way to its natural end and then to be humbled in his presence by what we see him doing and how he's going to empower us by his spirit to do the same thing. So let's just get right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, as I said in the introduction, this does in fact wrap up Matthew chapter 5, and it is the sixth of Jesus' statements, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And he has worked his way through the Old Testament um, in various places, uh, talking about murder, the taking of oaths, um, adultery, um, turning the other cheek, and, and so on, and, and retaliation and things that we looked at last week. But in this passage, Jesus is kind of bringing it um, all the way to a head. He's bringing it to its most logical conclusion about how radically different life in the kingdom is from the way life works everywhere else in the world. Now, it, it's one thing for the Pharisees, and, and I have said this before and I'll repeat it here, that Jesus is contrasting not so much what the Old Testament says as much as how it has been chosen to be interpreted and therefore taught to the people. And there's a lot of discussion about this, and you do have to um, have your head screwed on straight when you think about the way Jesus teaches and how that does at times seem to contradict the way the Old Testament presented um, the reality and nature of God. But in these passages, Jesus is correcting when he says, you have heard that it was said. And He's correcting the fact that the religious leaders were teaching a bit of a skewed understanding of the law. And so it's one thing in my mind to interpret the Old Testament law in a very narrow sense, as the Pharisees often did, one that typically ignores maybe massive ways that the law was meant to be applied, as was the example when Jesus talked about adultery. 
where he said, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus says it's not so narrow as you going out and having sex with another man's wife. Rather, it's it's of the heart. If you're even looking with lustful intent, you're guilty of having broken that commandment. But here we see something far more egregious. Um, here, the teaching to love one's neighbor as oneself had been reinterpreted to mean that if someone wasn't your neighbor, not only were you not obligated to love them, but the best way to highlight your love for your neighbor was to highlight your hatred for your enemy. Now, Jesus dealt with this very thing in his parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Um, if you know the story, you know a lawyer responds to Jesus's command to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He responds to Jesus's command about loving one's neighbor as um, yourself by saying, or and Luke tells us, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, for this lawyer, he wanted to know who is he obligated to love. And of course, Jesus in the telling of the parable never answers the man's question. In fact, reframes the question so that the man would ask, am I being a neighbor? And I remember studying this a few years ago and, and did a sermon on it that was pretty meaningful to me. And I know got a lot of response in our church. And I actually published that sermon on my podcast way back toward the beginning of the Revelation series. So it's it's been a couple years actually, but it's at episode 49 and it's titled, How Do You Read the Law? And um, if you want a chance to go back and look at that, um, you, you might be encouraged or challenged or, or what have you. Um, but here is an example of a time when the teaching isn't just too narrow-minded, but it's actually completely contrary to what the law itself said. Nowhere in the law are we ever given any command to hate your enemy. And yet, as the logic goes, at least as I can imagine it in my own mind, but to, to kind of repeat something that I just said, the, the teaching to love one's neighbor as oneself had been reinterpreted to mean that if someone wasn't your neighbor— not only were you not obligated to love them, but the best way to highlight your love for your neighbor was to highlight your hatred for your enemy. And there is a lot of this same thing that is still going on today. And a book that I came across several years ago is one definitely worth reading. I, I never did get David Fitch on my podcast, but I might still at some point as I've been reworking through this, this, this framework was very much in my mind and heart throughout the Revelation series. And then the more I read it, the more I just say, he's, he's just saying exactly what, what I already think. And that is, it's a book called The Church of Us Versus Them, Freedom from a Faith that Feeds on Making Enemies. And David Fitch does an excellent job in my mind of kind of helping the church culture understand the water that it's swimming in and the air that it breathes. And he does a good job, in my opinion, of bringing in historical and current trends 
in the political realm as well as in the way we tend to define salvation in the church and the way we tend to talk about it in strongly individualistic and interpersonal terms as opposed to looking at it societally and listening to a lot of the language used in the church, particularly as it relates to Christians wanting to supposedly reclaim America as a Christian nation and therefore seeing people groups or ideologies or voting um, positions that are put forth by Congress as being the, the enemies to this Christian nation ideal and therefore the people who we ought to be opposing in order to bring about this great Christian nation. And one of the points that he makes in the book is that in many people's passion and zeal to quote-unquote reclaim America as a Christian nation, their actions and their words and their demeanor and their attitude toward those they perceive are opposing the Christian nation standards actually make these particular Christians unchristian in the way that they actually treat other human beings or the way that they overlook real humans in the middle of having these political, partisan, positional or, or voting block discussions or arguments with one another. And he is absolutely right. And within the church, I have even felt it at times that if you are not as quote unquote, righteously angry toward another person who is opposing the, the Christian message um, as, you know, you're not as righteously angry as another member of your church. It's almost offensive to those people that you must not take sin that seriously, or you must not take God's truth that seriously because you're not outraged by this most recent degradation of the truth. And what tends to happen is people get labeled into they in fact are the enemies and Christians forget passages like the one I just read from Matthew 5, which explicitly talks about enemies and how Christians in living out their Christian calling are actually supposed to treat people like this. And so what I've found in the church is something that's stunning, but it's almost exactly the opposite of what Jesus is teaching. I have seen many Christians stand on the pillar of righteousness, so-called, in that their version of righteousness actually causes them to create enemies and to view themselves as more spiritual because they oppose these people with such vehemence. Jesus, in giving us the Sermon on the Mount, is in fact describing for us what righteousness in his kingdom looks like. And he tells us that it is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that kind of righteousness not only does not feed on making enemies or creating enemies, but it actually has a posture toward its enemies that is so radically different from the rest of the world that it is truly the manner by which the church is actually salt and light in the world. And so what does Jesus say? He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, 
love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, this is a fascinating statement here. Um, In the Beatitudes, he talks about, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And here he's saying to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now we know Jesus is the ultimate son of the father. And in the same way that Jesus was a peacemaker and in the same way that we will see Jesus even on the cross, praying for the father to forgive those who are murdering him for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus exemplified himself to be the true son of his father who is in heaven. And if you recall at the cross, when Jesus died, the first person to recognize that Jesus was the son of God and recognize that Jesus himself was the one who would should be worshiped was a Roman centurion who had grown quite comfortable in his own calling as a Roman soldier to view Caesar on the throne as the son of God. In fact, that's how the coins um, were used in circulation. And Caesar, Augustus, was believed to be divine. And every subsequent Caesar in Rome was viewed as the son of the divine or son of the divine Augustus. And so when a Roman centurion recognized that Jesus was the son of God, What he saw there was an immense love for enemies and a constant prayer for those who persecuted him. Jesus then says, the reason why you're going to be sons of your father who is in heaven is because your father who is in heaven acts in a certain way. His love is not dictated based upon the people who deserve it or based upon the people's actions and how they treat him or how they don't treat him. He says that the love that the father has for his world is rooted in the father himself. Excuse me. And so he says, for he, the father, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, what he's pointing out here is God's care for his creation causes him to make his make the sun rise. The sun rises and shines on the world, regardless of the deserving nature of the people who are in it. And the rain falls from the heavens on the crops of those who follow him and on the crops of those who don't. And the issue here is not rooted in whether the people themselves deserve it. It's rooted in the benevolent, kind nature of God. But then Jesus poses a couple of questions. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here, Jesus is actually specifying something quite drastic. And that is for us to come face to face with just how easy it is for us to love those who love us, to treat kindly those who treat us kindly, to be benevolent toward those who are benevolent toward us. And what I found is that the, for the Christians who tend to become very angry at the people who are Um, uh, opposing them is typically related to how much those people are standing in the way of Christians getting their way and how much those other individuals 
are preventing the Christians from the quote-unquote Christian nation that they're oftentimes trying to receive. And so what I see with what Jesus is teaching here is he is reminding us, look, if all you do is love people who love you, what are you doing more than the tax collectors do? And if you greet only your brothers, you're only kind to people who are in good standing with you, what more are you doing than others? The Gentiles in the world do the same thing. What Jesus is actually saying is that our character and the character that he desires to cultivate and work in us as his followers is something so radically transformational that the way to truly see whether we are being salt and light in the world is our ability and our ever-increasing capacity to love those who are nothing like us, who actually stand in our way and seek to prevent us from um, receiving the freedoms that we all feel like we ought to have. And what we tend to end up doing is just we repay people in kind, which is kind of what Jesus described at the passage before, right? If, 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 you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, like we repay people in kind. And in that passage, he said, well, if somebody does something bad to you, then, you know, you can do something bad to them, but only a little bit. Well, here he's, he's kind of flipping it around and he's like, well, yeah, but if you only love those people who do something kind to you, you repay them in kind, right? So eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Well, these, this is now people attempting to live as if, you know, someone is, is polite to me, I'll be polite to them. Someone is kind to me, I'll be kind to them. Someone is respectful of me, I'll be respectful of them. And Jesus is dropping a gauntlet down right now saying, but that is not how our Father in heaven operates. Therefore, those who call him Father, who seek to become his sons and daughters, will follow him and live in the same way. So this is why he says in the very last verse of the chapter, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, I grew up in a context which just decided to read the Sermon on the Mount as if this statement, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, was one statement finalized once and for all to make sure that nobody believed that they could become righteous on their own apart from the finished work of Jesus and that Jesus' teaching in the sermon was only given so that people would know there is absolutely no way that they can be righteous apart from God. And so God's going to have to give them his righteousness. Now, I understand that logic and I understand how people arrive at that conclusion, but I do not believe that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is rooting an unchanging, continually benevolent character of his father to all people. And he's encouraging and exhorting us to become the same kinds of people. He's like, as your heavenly father is perfect. Perfect in what? Perfect in love. Now, granted, I am not perfect in love and neither are you. But Jesus is not just saying this statement to shut our mouths so that we will all be held accountable before God and and quoting something from Romans chapter three. That's not what he's doing. He's actually exhorting us to become just like our heavenly father. And the benefit that that produces for us is that this is the way we become salt and light. This is the way that people look at the Christians and cannot make any sense of their life apart from this from this understanding 
There's just no way to do it. You, you can't imagine that people um, would respond this way into, you know, um, by, by seeing the way that Christians respond, seeing the way that they treat one another, um, coming to understand the way that they live and how, how it is that they choose to respond. This is, I think, a calling far greater for Christians to be um, um, led by the Spirit of God, to be confronted on a daily basis with just how natural it is for us to want to respond and repay people um, in kind. But I also think it's good for us to remember that when Jesus is calling us to righteousness, his list of what it means to truly be righteous isn't at all the kind of list that we've created for ourselves. You know, I grew up in a church context that put a lot of emphasis on scripture memory uh, Bible reading, daily prayer, um, devotional time, and journaling as disciplines for the Christian life that will make one, um, you know, grow in their faith. And I still practice those things. I I don't push them aside. I I'm still doing scripture memory, as I've shared with several of you before. And I do read the Bible on a regular basis. And I find myself praying throughout the day about all sorts of things. But what I've come to discover over the years is that none of those things are some special measure or special mark of my maturity in Christ or of my righteousness or my ability to um, be the salt and light that Jesus is calling us to be. Those things as disciplines might enable me to come more in tune with God's character and what he desires from me. But it is when I'm faced with someone who is in my way, drives me nuts gets under my skin, and I really wish the world was rid of that person, everybody's life would be better. It's when I'm faced with that reality on the ground, outside of my devotional time, when I don't have a Bible in my hand, when I don't feel like praying and can't for the life of me recall any Bible verse uh, from memory that I can use to apply in this situation, my opportunity to love or to hate them and feel justified in that hatred, that will tell me a whole lot more about my state in the presence of God and as I'm living out the standards of his kingdom than any amount of Bible reading, church attendance, participation on various committees, how faithfully I attend my small group, when, whether I prayed for 10 minutes today or not, or et cetera, et cetera. Jesus lays out precisely two areas where he is truly calling us to be salt and light. And he talks about loving one's enemies and praying for those who persecute us. And I know that that is not an easy thing to do. Um, I would say for many people who have maybe never thought about praying for those who persecute you or praying for those who make your life more miserable it the prayer that you offer might be might begin with god right now i hate this person and i know that you say i shouldn't do that but i can't help it the hatred is there and it seems to be taking over 
Um, I don't know how you can do this, but would you just um, would you just give that person a special day today? That's all I can muster. I, I don't even like this person, but if you could do something in their life that would be meaningful for them, I pray that you would do it. It is an attempt to mitigate against an ever-growing and ever-enlarging you know, um, hatred and um, despising of people within our own hearts, which I know firsthand can grow unbelievably quickly and unbelievably large um, within my own heart toward people that I think have made my life harder, people that annoy me, people that I think take themselves too seriously, people who I think have ego problems, people who are narcissistic, who I just wish would leave and never come back. And I realize that a lot of that is nothing more than a reflection of my own intolerance for people who aren't kind to me. And that, if I'm open to the work of Jesus and the work of his spirit, simply reveals what I lack in my own heart. Sure, that person's narcissistic or maybe they're egotistical or maybe they aren't very kind to other people and the friends that they don't have is their own fault. You know, all of those things can still be true, but I'm not interested in what's going on there as much as I'm interested in a righteousness of the heart that finds its home in the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is describing. And so what I do love about this book that I referenced is um, The Church of Us Versus Them, as well as what I'm talking about here with interpersonal relationships, it's the recognition that to have enemies, quote unquote, is not something that Christians stand on as their righteous stance for the truth, and therefore they oppose other people. That's not something that Jesus looks favorably on. Rather, he says, if you think you have enemies, your call is to love them. That's what my Father in heaven does. And as his children, that's what I'm calling you to do. This is a posture that's very foreign to Christians. In fact, I know of many in my own life who would think that there's something wrong with this kind of teaching because they have actually grown comfortable defining themselves as faithful Christians and identifying themselves as faithful Christians in relationship to how vehemently they oppose those they think are their enemies. And in the church, this tends to come out the strongest when we get into partisan political discussions. And this is good for those on the right and on the left. Those who do not love um, um, affordable health care in the church are hated by those on the left. And those who do not vote pro-life in the narrow way that it tends to be defined are hated by those on the right. And they are our enemies or those in favor of gay marriage are despised by the right. And those in favor of the government having more control over business owners are despised by those, um, well, those are despised by those on the left um, I'm sorry, having more control in the business would be despised by those on the right. And those who think that, that people should stay out of other people's business, you know, you're, if you don't believe that, then you're opposed by those on the left. Or if you love, love gun freedom and gun laws and gun rights, then you're opposed by those on the left. But if you seek for more restriction in the gun, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the issue. People on both sides of this aisle can get angry and, and upset at people on the other side of the aisle and our righteous cause or our righteous belief in our righteous 
causes is not what calls us righteous. What makes us righteous, what makes us like our Father in heaven is our ability to have these firmly held convictions and still manage to extend grace and compassion and greeting and benevolence and love toward those people who we believe stand opposed to us. And so I think the call for us as the church is not only to recognize this, but to stop believing that our um, strong opposition toward other people is in any way, shape, or form some type of, 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 of an example of our righteousness or our spirituality, because it's not. What Jesus calls us to and what Jesus says is evidence that we are becoming like our Father who is in heaven is our ability to be within ourselves unfazed by the type of people we're called to love. We're called to love those who treat us kindly. We're called to love those who treat us poorly. We're called to love those who stand in our way. We're called to love those who are in the way with us, heading in our direction, encouraging us along the path. This is how the Father in heaven is perfect. He is unchanging. He does not make decisions based upon who stands to gain more or who stands to lose. Or as the way James describes it, he is impartial. He doesn't favor one versus the other. He doesn't look at some people with with more favor than another person. We don't know a world where you don't do that. We just assume that God is like that. And we assume that when we stand opposed to, to who we like to label the wicked, that we're somehow being like God. And yet that is not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus actually extends the Father's compassion and love for all mankind, desiring to reconcile the world to himself on the cross, allowing the world to put him to death and continuing to extend the love of the Father to them, praying for them with his dying breath. That's who we follow. Jesus is the standard in the kingdom. Jesus defines righteousness for the world. And we are most most faithful to his kingdom righteousness when we seek to do the exact same thing. And so today, or wherever you are listening to this, I encourage you to spend a little time asking him, to direct you in your heart who are the kinds of people that you view as your enemy. They might be a personal person, someone who has really upset you at school, someone who treats you like garbage at work, someone that you had a falling out with years ago in the church and find it very difficult to tolerate anything that they say or do in the church. They irritate you. They agitate you. And you've come to realize after listening through this episode that you simply have a very hard time loving a person who would have the audacity to treat you like that. That is a new place for you. And that is a new place for me. But it's an opportunity for Jesus to transform that heart within us into a heart that learns how to continually love someone that we believe with every fiber in our being does not deserve it from us. That is a heart that is open to the kingdom way. And that is a heart that the spirit will transform slowly but steadily over time, 
creating in us the kinds of character that our Father himself has. And it's a hard place to be, but it is a joyous place to be because if we can slowly get to a place where the people around us no longer cause us to shift internally, but rather our internal state is firm and is fixed in the Father's love, then we are capable of continually being his light and his salt in the world, regardless of who's around us. Today, however, I've noticed that a lot of people spend their time fighting. They fight against their so-called enemies. They want to regain power and control over their enemies so that the laws and the policies that they want to to, to be passed are the ones that are passed and they're constantly fighting against their enemy, not realizing that what we stand to gain as Christians in a world that doesn't go our way or in a world where we don't have the power or when we are faced in the presence of the nations with a weakness that resembles what Jesus came to live with, that's when we actually have the opportunity to shine like the stars in the heavens. That's when we have the opportunity to shine forth with the love of Christ that people cannot accuse us of having that be wrapped up in a desire for power or a desire for control. It is a true, unadulterated love rooted in the righteousness of Jesus that he's called us to embody that will actually change the world. It doesn't happen quickly and it doesn't happen um, in big chunks. It might be something as simple as reorienting your heart so that you don't roll your eyes the next time your neighbor flies into his driveway without paying any attention to what's going on around him and almost hits you on the side of the street while you're checking your mail. It's the little things. It's always the little things. And as we'll look at in chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount, it's the little things and it's the private things. And it's those simple disciplines that I talked about before that sometimes manage to get us in trouble because our hearts long to define righteousness quite differently than Jesus does. And so I'm hoping that we'll have a good opportunity to walk our way through those passages, many of which are very familiar and yet very, very challenging and very convicting. So that's all the time I have for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in and for those who are continuing to listen on a weekly basis. If you have found any of these episodes helpful and you haven't yet given me a rating or a review on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these episodes, I'd ask that you would do that sometime this week. I know it it seems a little inconvenient. Sometimes you're in the car driving and by the time you get home, you've forgotten. And um, I understand that. But if you could remember to do that um, and just take several minutes and leave me a, a whatever star review you think this deserves and then a couple words of a comment, that would be really helpful in those algorithms helping other people to find the podcast. So I appreciate each of you. As always, if you'd like to email me with any questions, comments, thoughts, um, other recommendations on your part, you can email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. I hope you have a fantastic week, and I will talk to you next time.